Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. On today's show, we have Jim Hall and John Taylor from Triatech, um, CEO and Director of Product Development. Welcome, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us, Amy. So I would love to find out just a little bit more about Triatech. What does Triatech do? And tell us a little bit about your technology. Sure. Glad to. So Triatech manufactures and designs systems that control the directional flow of air, which sounds kind of a strange, esoteric concept. But if you think about the applications, it makes sense. When you walk into an isolation room in a hospital, it's critical that the directional flow of air is understood and controlled. If a patient's got an infectious disease, when that door opens, it's important that air only flows into that room and not out. So Triatech systems control and ensure that that takes place. The opposite could be true. You may have a patient that's susceptible to an infectious disease, in which case, when the door opens, air can only flow out of the room. So we make sure those environments are, are sustainable. The second big application for us, and it's similar, would be in laboratories where you have a fume hood. The person puts their experiment in, they close the sash, and when that sash opens, it's important air flows away. So we control laboratories and hospital environments. And so uh, do you do any uh, work with chemical companies or... Uh, is it mainly just healthcare that you work with? So a big portion of our business is obviously the hospital marketplace for isolation and operating rooms. And then laboratories, there's a wide variety of companies that have laboratories. Obviously, a big part of it would be universities and their uh, teaching laboratories. But then many of our customers are <clears throat> companies like Firestone or Smuckers mm. or even Jelly Belly Jelly Beans <laughs> who are doing experiments on new flavors. And so they do those in laboratories. Great. I always love to start the show by finding out uh, from my uh, CEO guests, what are the key trends in your industry that you think are important for other CEOs to know about? So I'll toss that question over to you now. Sure. So Triatech is very closely follows uh, the construction marketplace. And so if you think about the laboratories in, in industry, um, the construction marketplace has been was devastated through 2008 through 2010, 12. But we're really seeing a lot of the construction industry come back now. For the hospital marketplace, however, because of the, the trend of baby boomers and the demographics that are going on, hospital construction and renovations, particularly for infection control, really didn't slow down as much. And the need and importance of that has continued to grow as hospitals compete in their own marketplaces. So we've seen strong growth on the hospital side. <clears throat> and now we are really seeing the construction industry come back uh, almost to the point where it was in 2007. And so we feel confident that the economy is starting to go back in a positive direction. And so it sounds like you must follow the real estate markets pretty closely. We do. Commercial real estate is is key to us. For a long time, uh, the last five years really, new construction has been on the back burner. But we're seeing and have seen a fair amount of money invested in renovations, particularly to try and drive energy conservation. And we fall into that niche for the construction industry as well. On a college campus, the biggest user of energy will be the laboratory. And so you can oftentimes go in and renovate an older laboratory with newer technology, provide a higher level of control, and use the energy savings to justify the cost of the renovation. So we're really starting to see a true increase in, 
in renovations and laboratories driven by uh, the move towards being green. And so what are your expectations, let's say, for the remainder of uh, 2015? Are you expecting that hospital renovations and, and new construction coming back? Are you expecting for that to persist and how long? So we certainly see uh, infection control as being kind of a hot topic. It kind of pops up into the news and then subsides a little bit. But we're never too far away from the next infection crisis. Ebola was recent. Everybody knows about MRSA. There was SARS before that and MERS, tuberculosis. All those things have been in and out of the news at various times over the past years. Hospitals are taking a, 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 a more aggressive approach towards being ready so that they are infection control prepared so they can be ready for the next who knows what that's coming. And... um you know, as you, you look at the hospital renovations, you said that that was a function of the of of boomers and um, the also the trend towards um, environmentalism and con- energy conservation. Are there any big other big drivers um, of growth in your industry? Innovation. So, particularly in the higher education marketplace, a lot of universities are. Uh, have, have benefited from their own innovations developed on their campuses and commercializing them. And so we see oftentimes competition for top thought leaders in certain industries. And one of the attractions to bring them to your institution is the kind of facilities that this person is going to want to have. Mm. And so it's almost a recruiting tool sometimes where you may go and either you're trying to attract federal grants or industry grants or, or thought leaders, having top-notch, high-grade facilities is a recruiting tool and what you need to compete sometimes. And universities often sometimes look at it even as a return on their investment if they can develop products and innovation that then can be commercialized. This seems like a pretty narrow and specific niche. Have you always been in this industry? It's extremely niche, and there are some advantages to Triatech. For that, it's still a sizable industry for a small, medium-sized company, but yet not big enough to be attractive for large companies to enter the marketplace. So it almost forms a barrier to entry. What's your estimate for the size of the market? How big is, do you think your market is? It's really hard for us to be 100% certain, but it's estimated somewhere in about 150 to 200 million dollars a year uh, domestically, and so you can typically double that for the rest of the world as well. And uh, so have you always been in, in this uh, this niche? And how did you how did you find your way into this little narrow slice of the of the business world? Tritech's been in business for uh, 30 consecutive years. We were founded in 1985 right here in uh, Norcross, Georgia, by three gentlemen. Uh, and it's a kind of a typical American story where they started in their garage uh, and grew the business and moved to bigger facilities. The, the, the short story is, uh, as many entrepreneur founders will run into, they were undercapitalized and they chose to alleviate the undercapitalization by not paying payroll taxes, which ultimately led to them having to declare bankruptcy. I, I purchased the company in 2008 together with uh, two partners, literally at a, a chapter seven liquidation auction. So I would be interested if any of your <laughs> listeners or anybody in this uh, broadcast area has ever come across a company that not survived Chapter 11, but actually survived Chapter 7. We continually operated the company while it was in Chapter 7, which is also extremely unique. 
got it to an auction uh, in October of 2008, and we purchased the assets literally at an auction in federal bankruptcy court, opened the next day as a brand new business. So while the company continually operated every day for the last 30 years, never shut down, we had new ownership back in 2008. We saw it as a, an opportunity to get a company that had uh, great products, a niche marketplace, a solid team in place, just needed uh, some capital and some management direction. And with that, we've been able to turn it around and make it a successful enterprise. And and why did you choose this company versus some other company? Um, and I imagine that you were at the Chapter 7 auction looking for looking for opportunities. Why did you choose this one over some of the others? So the auction was in October of 2008, and we had really begun our due diligence and working on on buying the company almost a year earlier. Mm. It declared Chapter 11 in July of 2007, and we had known about the business going back to 2002. So we had a lot of inside knowledge about the business because we had investigated purchasing it back in 2002 once we had discovered that it had uh, a silent partner as the IRS, we walked away and kind of followed its progression. When it was forced into Chapter 11, we got back involved and really began doing a lot of serious due diligence. My partners had a really interesting idea that, that's available to anybody interested in looking at bankrupt companies. They put a post-petition loan into the company when it was in Chapter 11. Chapter 11 companies have a need for working capital, and it's obviously hard to get. By putting that loan in after it declared Chapter 11, we were in first position, which meant that if the company liquidated, we would get our money back first, actually be my partners in this case. That allowed all of us to start doing things and making the company get in line with its expenses and its revenue projections. And so we had done some behind-the-scenes work on the company because we had the power of the uh, of the loan to force those things to happen. So we had really done a lot of work in the company prior to it getting to the auction. And so, John, you were involved in the company at this time when the bankruptcy and all through the course of all these events. Uh, how how did that transition go? And and I imagine it must was it a difficult time at the company? Uh, I have to say it was a very difficult time. Uh, quite stressful. Um, we were, we were actually being paid daily and it was kind of interesting, sort of humorous now, but, um, we would get our paychecks and all of us would make a beeline to the, to the bank. So, cause you weren't sure if the checks were clear. Sure. Sure. Wow. So it was a very stressful time. Why did you continue to work at the company? Why didn't you leave? Well, at the time, personally, I was uh, a consultant, so I had several clients, and TriTech was one of my clients, and um, great company, uh, really believed in the products, uh, they had a great, uh, you know, great track rec- record in the marketplace, um, but they were just going through some difficult times, so uh, I was in the middle of several uh, projects that I didn't want to just walk away from, so uh, kind of felt obligated to stick it through. Yeah, and what about the the customers? Was all were the were your customers aware of all of this activity during during the bankruptcy and all of the the I guess drama, <laughs> for lack of a better word? Of course, because it's public information, and our competitors use that instantly. 
So the marketplace was aware of what we were going through. And our path to market, particularly in the laboratory space, was through an independent rep network. People who are selling products that kind of bundle together and make sense in that marketplace. Uh, they were folks that typically acted like a shock absorber. And so they often dealt with most of the pain as far as delivery of products and getting orders placed and working with Triatech. And then they turned around and, and managed the customer expectations and what had to happen in the marketplace. So to some extent, they helped with a brand name in that regard. But certainly there were plenty of people that felt pain. Mm. And did, uh, was there a con contraction in sales at the same time as well? Did you end up losing customers or did you were you able to successfully maintain or were your independent reps able to successfully maintain most of those relationships? Absolutely. We lost sales. And if you think about those two marketplaces we talked about on the hospital side, because we've been in that business for so long, there was a fairly stable repair and replace business for the isolation room monitors. So that business, while it declined, got to a point where it stabilized. On the laboratory side, because we're involved in the construction industry with very long product lead time cycles, if we got an order today, you'd have to wait for a building to be gutted or, or brought it from the ground. It might be six, eight months before you need the product. Well, nobody in their right mind is going to buy a lab system from a company that may not be here in six months. So the laboratory side effectively went to zero. Hmm. And it sounds to me, if I, if I heard you correctly, that a lot of this was happening in October of 2008. That's right. Which was an interesting time, regardless of all the things that were happening at TriTech. Did you have to go to the public markets to raise that money? No. But the facts of what was going on in October 2008 was critical to some of our success in that the lawyers for the creditors, the folks who were owed money in the bankruptcy, they have a fiduciary responsibility to drive the most value out of the auction. And in doing so, they actually had to take our the, the actual contract that we had signed with the IRS for the purchase of the company, and they mailed it out to all the creditors and every single one of our competitors in the hopes of driving an auction. So the first question that the judge asked the lawyer for the creditors at the beginning of the auction was, did you follow my instructions? Yes, I did. Are there other bidders in the room? And his answer was, well, as of a few days ago, there were two publicly traded companies who expressed interest and stated they were going to be here. But as I look around, they're not in the room. And as I look back on that, the fact that the stock market crashed right at that time, I'm certain had a lot to do with publicly traded companies choosing not to come by a bankrupt company. So in a lot of regards, we were benefited by the fact that the, the market's scared away people from taking the risk that I was willing to do. The second thing that happened that really was to our benefit had to do with our supply chain. Many of our suppliers uh, had suffered some losses, but because the economy was bad and they needed customers and I had cash, it was possible to reestablish our supply chains. And so in a lot of ways, it's awkward to say, but I benefited from what happened in October 2008. Right. That's a good lesson that somebody's always making money. That's right. So you mentioned this um, term, post-petition loan. Can you explain a little bit about what that instrument is? How does how does that actually work? So it's a concept, and, and obviously you have to go to the courts and get approval to do this. But it's a, a vehicle by which companies can get financing while they reorganize under Chapter 11. 
there's companies here in town, Delta being a great one, that successfully reorganized in a Chapter 11. As part of that reorganization, what really happens in Chapter 11 is you'll call a timeout from your creditors, and they can no longer pursue you for collections. And that timeout is to be used to put a new plan together, reorganize. You have to present that to the creditors and to the courts. So during that time frame, how do you capitalize, how do you finance a company? Well, a post-petition loan is the vehicle that allows that to happen, and it comes with some stricter parameters and some guidelines that companies have to meet in order to get that. One of which is that upon liquidation, that loan gets repaid first. That requires, obviously, creditors and the courts to approve and say, okay, fine, we're willing to allow this to happen, which puts them in a, a, at a greater risk of not recovering their own debts. So if everybody agrees and you go through this process, it's possible to emerge and reorganize as a new entity with the debt um, you know, alleviated. In Triatech's case, uh, it was not successful. They were not able to emerge from Chapter 11. The process continued uh, for a, a number of reasons, and the IRS forced the conversion from a Chapter 11 to a Chapter 7. By definition, that's liquidate the assets, padlock the doors. Our offer to the IRS, which was the major uh, the creditor for the company, was contingent on the business continuing to operate. So that required us to go back to the courts and get a special approval to allow the business to continue to operate while it was in Chapter 7. And here's the neat thing that came out of that process that has everything to do with the auction. Because our offer was contingent on the business continuing to operate, anybody interested in bidding was not allowed to do any due diligence. Time was of the essence, and if they were to take another 60 or 90 days and then walk away, we would walk away from our offer potentially. The second thing is the courts required that while it was in Chapter 7, anybody who purchased the business would assume any and all operational liabilities incurred by the company during that time. So now let's go back to that auction period when the publicly traded companies didn't show up. In order for that to work, somebody in the company who was a champion for the acquisition would have had to go onto their legal team and said, listen, I want to buy this company at a Chapter 7 auction, but we can do no due diligence <laughs> and I have to assume all the liabilities. <laughs> didn't happen. So we were able to put a few things into the deal, and they were obviously disclosed because we sent the deal everywhere else, but those things made it very difficult for somebody else to come and get the business. So, John, during this period of the, the Chapter 7, and you're seeing um, Jim and his team come in and, and seeing the old owners uh, exit, how how did you how were you able to transfer your your trust to the, the new leadership team? And, and I my assumption, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is there probably was some sort of a breakdown in trust with the other, with the previous ownership. If you're at the point where you're, you're afraid to cash their checks and, you know, they're, they're not making, um, their payroll taxes and stuff like that. So tell me a little bit about, about how you were able to, to take on a new, a new leadership team successfully. So Jim was involved, um, got involved with the company prior to the bankruptcy and, um, you know, He's a really nice guy, very personable, uh, obviously. You've met him this morning. Um, he's, uh, he's easy to do business with, and um, he just has a, a certain uh, trust about him that, uh, you know, allows you to take him at ease. And so, yeah, there was a, a big degree of mistrust going on with the previous owners, Um yeah, you know, we were 
little concerned about whether or not we were going to continue to get paid. Um, but we saw Jim as uh, potentially, um, you know, the, the person who was going to be able to save the company and, and continue taking it forward. Um, there hadn't really been a whole lot of new development going on towards the end of the old company. And we saw an opportunity to potentially do some big things uh, if Jim were to take over the company. And so what happened with the with the old owners, John? Like how how did your relationship kind of wind down? And 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 Jim, I mean, where are they now? That's a complicated question. <laughs> the, the good good questions usually are. The interesting thing was the answer to the question that, uh, that we asked of the creditor's attorneys, was there anybody else in the courtroom, it's finished up by the fact that the old owner was there to bid. So we did have an actual auction, and the old owner was sitting on the other side of the courtroom uh, in the back with a proxy representing his group bidding to buy the business back. And so the fact that we had to go through this auction against him ultimately resulted in his no longer being involved in the company going forward. Were you guys friends before this? We did know each other. Uh, I, I wouldn't characterize us as friends. We had obviously a relationship that goes back quite a bit. But um, that forever once and resolved his involvement in the company. Our initial plan was to include him. And as we forced the business to do some of the things that it needed to do, and as we put our new plan together for the business going forward, he objected to a lot of the things that we felt were necessary. And consequently, we encouraged him to go out and find his own financing if he wanted it. Uh, he did, uh, but we were stronger and literally had to out-auction him for the business. And um, once that was done, it was clear that he was no longer going to be involved with the business. So that really made it a clean cut. Mm. From your standpoint, how does it how does it get to that point? How does it get to the point where, you know, a company can go from, you know, being healthy and having good clients and a good client base and, um, you know, stable revenues and a, a great team like people like John who've stayed on for how long have you been in, involved in the company, John? Uh, coming up on 10 years. Right. So for 10 years, et cetera, and then get to the point where you're, you know, so behind on payroll taxes that you end up with the IRS taking over your business and, having somebody else buy it out from under you. How does how does it get to that point? You know, I think a lot of entrepreneur founders run into this inflection point that a lot of businesses struggle with. And if you start a business and you get it started, oftentimes you're willing as a founder entrepreneur to put in sweat equity, work for nothing. Um, and if businesses get to a point where they start to grow and gain traction, where you've got to cross that point over and be able to scale the business. And that means you've got to relinquish some control. You've got to be able to find people that will do some of those things as good as you wanted them done. And then you've got to find the money to pay them to do that. And that's a inflection point that I think a lot of businesses really struggle with, and TriTech was no exception. As it grew, and it grew exponentially, and it was undercapitalized, the management team started making decisions that, caused long-term damage to the company. And they're basically around those two issues. One is not having enough capital to finance their growth. And as all your listeners, I'm sure, are well aware, you can go broke from growth just as easily from lack of sales by not having the working capital. 
So they had to find some ways to alleviate working capital issues. But just as importantly, while they're making that bad decision, other bad decisions were being made that really boiled down to the ability and willingness for the founder to give up control so the business can grow. You have to start delegating the things that you did all of in the early days of a company. Otherwise, it's not scalable. And so those things really restricted and hampered the business. And what about you, John? Did you find the previous owner? Do you echo echo Jim's sentiments? I do. I do. Um, the previous owner was um, he was an interesting, <coughs> excuse me, interesting character. He um, he did have a difficult time delegating, and uh, I think as times got worse and it got closer to the point of you know uh, that point of no return. Uh, it, it got it got worse for him. It was it was very difficult for him to relinquish any sort of control on on management of the company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as we we look at um, you know this in in holistically, what would you say, both of you? And I'm gonna you know try take this in turn. Would be the key lessons that you would offer to um, to. CEOs who are listening to this from the, the whole Chapter 7 experience. So I came to this business with no industry experience, and I'm not an engineer. To this day, I have a rudimentary understanding about how all our technology works, and it's fairly sophisticated and fairly complicated. I think the biggest lesson that I would share that helped Triatech a lot is business owners, CEOs are often the last stop for questions and problems. And throughout the day, I'm sure all of your listeners can relate, people come into your office with questions, with problems, and they're expecting you to come up with the solutions for them. And that can be a big burden on a lot of people. And a lot of folks take those questions and feel like their role is to solve all the problems. My philosophy was the exact opposite. And part of it came from the fact that I really didn't know that much. So the first question that I ask everybody who comes into my office with a question or a problem is, well, what do you recommend? And with that, the problem turns right back around off my shoulders back onto them. (laughs) But most importantly, these are the people who are dealing with it all the time. When you challenge them that way, they often will come up with better solutions than you would ever have thought of. Or even if they don't have the solution right then and there, they go away and say, let me get back to you and think about that a little bit. And then when they come back with a solution, you may guide that a little bit or challenge it a little bit here or there, but typically you get great answers and great solutions. And eventually, people get to the point where they stop asking you. They know that they've got the ability to do these things. I think our engineering team at Triatech is a great example of that in that we had issues with some of our products. While they were fantastic, solid products, there were components in them that were obsolete for over 10 years when I bought the company, and we were buying components on the gray market. So John was one of the people that came in and said, you know, we've got this problem with our core product. These parts are obsolete. And I said, well, what do you recommend? (laughs) And from there, we got a whole brand new product line. Within two years, we discontinued the older version and have a completely updated brand new system. They're beautiful. They have touch screens. They look and work fantastic. They have more features and benefits simpler for us to manufacture. And it was just a matter of asking that question. 
And so if I would pass one thing on to any other business owner, CEO, that would make their days easier and their businesses more successful is get in the habit of asking that question when people come into your office. Right. And what about you, John? What, what recommendations do you have for CEOs coming out of the, the whole Chapter 7 experience? So I think probably the best advice I can give is to um, impart a little trust. So there has to be trust on both sides. Uh, I had to trust Jim in taking the reins of the company going forward. But then he had to trust me and and have the confidence to know that I would take the product development effort in the right direction. So, and, and that, that relationship evolves, right? So um, some advice for CEOs in this situation, if you have good people, quality people, um, then trust in them, believe in them, and support them. And uh, they'll provide a return, uh, great returns for you. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us to the second segment of the show where I love to talk about, you know, the relationships that make make these businesses so successful. So uh, tell me a little bit about how you guys work together and, you know, like even how you first met in the in the midst of the the bankruptcy. What did that look like? You know, and how did you begin to build that that trust, which is, you know, obviously grown over the few years and, and supported the business? So when I bought the company, we opened as a new enterprise. Uh, I think we were down to 14 people, mm-hmm. and that made me employee number 15. Vast majority, a big reason why we purchased the company, uh, obviously we, we knew the company's history, we knew the technology and the products, but the people who were there, like John said, believed in the company, believed in the products, and were willing to stick through, they had the tribal knowledge. They had the the stories and the and the inside um, understanding of what has to happen for our products to be successful, and so that was a critical point. So, yeah, during the process that we were going through and evaluating the company, we were evaluating the people too, and it was a pretty clear conclusion that we had some really sharp people who have done high degrees um, at, at fine institutions, had great experience with their products. And we're willing to work through what John understates is literally some of the worst working conditions you could deal with. Um, customers are yelling at you, vendors are yelling at you, mm-hmm. and you may or may not get paid every day. And so just the fact that people were willing to show up every day and work hard in those kind of circumstances was a great testament to their character and gave us the confidence to believe in them. So then the question becomes, all right, how do we get these people to stay? We got past the decision about keeping them. It's like, what do we have to do to make these people want to be part of where we're going? Can we put a vision on the table and encourage these people to to reach their potential and do what they can do and make this company successful? And so that became more of my goal and my intention is I got to make sure these people want to be part of where I think I can take this company. To that extent, all those people stayed and we started hiring back people who had left. Um, and that has everything to do with why the company's been successful. Mm. And John, how many people did the company, you know, during the decline, um, Jim said it went down to 14 or 15 people. How many people did, did you used to have, or did you have before all this started? So TriTech has always been a, a fairly small company. Um, I'd say there were probably five or six people who, 
uh, just didn't stick around through the uh, through the tough times. Mm. And how big is it now? Right now, we're at about 35 people. Okay, so you've doubled in size in five years mm-hmm. or so. Um, and I found you guys through the Paysetter list, which is the list of the fastest growing companies in Atlanta. Um, so other than anything that you've already mentioned, what would you say were, were some of the other contributors to you achieving that fast level or, of growth? So there are a couple of key things. One is we talked about it being a niche marketplace and there was a very entrenched competitor that had somewhat of a stranglehold on the marketplace. Uh, they're an excellent company. They make a great product. But when Triatech was in its difficulties, they pretty much could do what they wanted in the marketplace. And consequently, there was opportunities because they couldn't make everybody happy. And the market screams for competition. Even if companies were concerned about where we were in delivery of our product, they wanted competition to bring better pricing. And so we recognized that need in the marketplace. And so that was primarily on the laboratory side. Our sales channel is through, we've got a network of about 50 companies throughout the U.S. that sell a wide variety of HVAC products and use our lab systems then when uh, appropriate. In their marketplaces, if they didn't have access to our competitor's product, which they didn't, our rep network would not, they couldn't compete and bid for millions of dollars worth of bundled product sales at a university is building a new chemistry lab, for example. So they would tell us they had to have our product line, they had to have our company in order for them to be able to compete. So a big part of our strategy then was once we stabilized the company internally, we moved to a new location, built a custom facility, we invited our rep network in to energize them and build their confidence to go back out and represent our products. Once we were able to do that and demonstrate that they could count on us, that it was worth it for them to go out and, and represent our products again, sales really started taking off. That was in the U.S. The next step for us then was to go internationally, and a big part of our growth has been uh, worldwide. We've successfully sold lab systems on every continent in the world, except for Antarctica. Our competitor has that lab. There is one there, <laughs> <laughs> and they can keep it. <laughs> we've, we've, we've waved the white flag on Antarctica. But we've been able to sell all over the world, and massive, massive projects. And so we've been able to restore the brand name. We've been able to provide uh, top-level competition to an entrenched competitor. And we're taking market share right and left. Mm. And, John, what does, what does innovation look like, you know, in the midst of all this growth? Um, I know that you're the director of product development. So how are you continuing to innovate even as the company, company grows? So uh, my trick is, or my secret if if I have one, um, is to just stay abreast of the competition and uh, continue to look forward. Um, you know, we know what we do really well. Um, we know where our products stand today. But we also know and, and accept that they can always improve. And so um, a big source of uh, motivation for uh, continuing the product development efforts is is feedback from our reps and from our customers so we're constantly 
getting feedback from customers, uh, the users of our equipment, um, you know, to tell us what, what's missing. Um, a few years ago, we had several holes in our product line that uh, just missing segments in our product line that, you know, our customers said, listen, we really need these holes filled. Um, and so those were no-brainers. We, we basically hunkered down and, and developed those products, and, and now we have a complete, uh, comprehensive uh, product offering. And um, so what's next for, for Triatech? We are having a great year right now uh, with our domestic business uh, being up. We're we're up well over thirty percent for this year, which is which is great. But what's real exciting for us is what we're seeing for TriTech internationally. In July, we opened uh, our office in China, which is a brand new market for us, mm. and we uh, we have a, a location over there. We've got uh, salespeople. We've been over making sales calls. We've had uh, our first products uh, and sales shipped to China. Uh, obviously, China's in the news a lot. I'm following it fairly closely with what's happening with their economy. But having been over there, it's amazing to see what they're doing and the emphasis that in a planned economy they have on being able to compete worldwide with innovation. And so the government is investing a tremendous amount of money in laboratories to drive new product development. And we will benefit from that significantly, which is why we're over in China right now. Mm-hmm. And so that market, it's even hard for me to fathom what and how big our opportunity is. But being over there for a few weeks, uh, it could easily double us in the next two to three years just in Asia. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have, are your competitors in China as well? They are. And they have offices there. And um, the folks that we're working with used to be involved with some of our competitors' products. And there's a few people worldwide that do what we do. It, it is pretty niche, but there's not many. And so we go, we've, or we've developed a relationship with a company that's got expertise in lab design and actually engineering and architecting them. They then build all the furniture and accessories, including the fume hoods. And so we're the, the basically the third piece, which is the control system to make labs work. So we found a great partner over there that's got years of experience and established name, and they're already driving sales for us. Great, great. Uh, I'm a, a strategist, and you know I am very interested in hearing a little bit about your approach to, to planning, because as you mentioned at the beginning of, of the interview, you can die from choking um, as a business more often than from starvation. So what's your approach to, to planning and making sure that this uh, this growth is sustainable. I live and die by my strategic plans. Yay! And <laughs> I love it, to hear that. It is it is amazing to me how many people and business owners don't do it, and I find it horrifying and scary when they don't. I wouldn't sleep at night if I didn't have a plan and I wasn't tracking that plan and how we're doing against it and making adjustments. It's the only way to be able to understand what growth needs are. And that's the biggest role that I play in the company is understanding and seeing where our trajectory is and making sure I've got the infrastructure and the financing in place to make it work. Hmm. We'll give you a perfect example. This year, we started to see there's a there's a long sales cycle for our products. These lab jobs that come up 
could be years in development before you get an order or certainly six to eight to 10, 12 months. But they come in huge chunks and orders are very large. And so we made a decision earlier this year to double our manufacturing capacity and go from one shift to two shifts. That requires getting your supply chain in line and making sure that they understand it, making sure you've got the financing in place to fuel that supply chain, getting the right people on and trained. We did that far enough in advance so that by July we could start actually doing that. It took us really the first week, end of July, first week of August. And thank goodness that we did because without that plan, without executing that plan, we, we got swamped and we would not be able to keep up right now. Our production facility is is chock full through almost the end of this year right now, running double shifts. And it was a little hard to see all of that coming. But we did have a plan. We executed that plan. And now we're able to survive it. But I am diligent about knowing where our business is going. I follow the numbers very closely every day. Uh, we review our plan against our budget uh, every month. We make adjustments as necessary, and then I make sure I've got the financing in place to fuel that growth. And so as you look at your approach to strategic planning, do you guys do uh, like a long-form business plan once a year, or what, what, what process do you actually follow? I do, and, and we have a, a, an excellent enterprise system that also helps us with a lot of our budgeting and forecasting. We're completely integrated into an ERP system. So we've got visibility to uh, every facet of the business from uh, for, you know, forecasting inventory needs, carrying costs, you know, space, people and personnel. And I put a very meticulous detailed plan together every year that we then load into our system, which gives us the ability to measure against that plan. And you know, the key to a plan, the only thing you know about it when you put it into your system at the beginning of the year is it's wrong. <laughs> you're not going to hit it. But it does give you the guideposts by which you can measure your performance. And if you're ahead of revenue projections, it gives you more flexibility to do some things. If you're behind, you have to know where you go to cut and to trim so that the bottom line ends up where it needs to be. And unless you have that plan and unless you're, you're tracking your progress against it and you're making those adjustments, you will fail. There's no other way around it. Mm. A failure to plan is a plan to fail. Right. And, and John, one of the things that you mentioned is, is tracking your um, competitors. So how do you go about gathering that competitive intelligence? And then how does that feed into your planning process, Jim? How do you get that competitive intelligence? Because that's one thing that I know some, some uh, of my clients struggle with. So one of the uh, big ways that we do that is uh, we attend an annual trade show um, where all of our con competitors happen to exhibit. <laughs> And and it's we're not uh, exclusive in that they they most of the competitors do the same thing. Um, we basically take a look at you know what the newest and greatest thing that they've released is, and uh, we also have conversations about you know plans for future products and um, and so forth. No time like the present to have access to information. So there's many sources, but there's nothing like having um, you know collective access to all of your competitors in one you know one location mm -hmm. so the annual trade show is a is a big one for us mm. do you ever do any formalized market research i think the way we go about doing that is is directly with 
customers and users. Mm-hmm. And what we've found, particularly over the last couple of years, is we, we talked earlier about how energy savings are what's driving a lot of the uh, construction and, and renovations in throughout colleges and universities. And that's being driven and done by sophisticated engineers, design architects, who are looking to dr- push the envelope with ensuring a safe lab, but also one that's energy uh, energy focused, energy saving focused, but with a high visibility to their building automation system and a high level of control. That's really where a lot of the ideas oftentimes come is, well, it'd be great if we could do this. And what our engineering staff has the ability to do is take that information and move quickly and get things done. And so we pride ourselves on a higher level of customization and flexibility to meet the sequence of operation requirements of our customers. Our competitors have shown an inflexibility to doing that. Part of it is because they're so large, entrenched, Fortune 100 companies, they don't move as quick. But our ability to be nimble and drive those innovations that are requested by the customers has led to some product developments and some things that we're willing to do that our competitors just flat won't. Mm. And that's got a big thing to do, big, big growth opportunity for us is just in doing that. And so John mentioned this competitive intelligence that you get from the trade show. How does that figure into your strategic planning? So we sit down and, and, and literally have a conversation and, and John and I regularly meet monthly to review what's happening with his team and his group and, and what his plans are. And it starts with that question. John, what do you recommend? What do we need for people? Where do you see us going? What kind of things are you working on? What kind of a budget do you need to execute those things? And now having worked with him long enough, um, I know uh, to, to count on his information and, and what I get back from him as, as reliable. And if, um, as we've gone through a few times, we have a need for resources, we have a need for people, um, I agree with those plans. If I do, I'll put them into the strategic plan and figure out if I can say yes to them. And that's where I see my role. Um, obviously, you manage everybody a little bit differently. With our engineering staff, that's really the strength of our company. And uh, I've got confidence that when they come and say, I think we need to go in this direction, we need to develop these products, here's what we're going to need to be able to get there. It's easy to say yes to those guys, provided I can make the strategic plan follow through. Great. Well, in the closing moments of the show, I'd love to find out if there's anything else that's new um, at Triatech that you'd like to let our listeners know about Going into China is very, very exciting. Um, you've ruled out Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> um, but any other uh, new innovations or product launches on the horizon? We do. We have a lot of things that, that are, are in our plans for the next couple of years. Uh, some things that we've developed now. Uh, one of the things that, that has... Uh, I don't know how, how well this translates to your audience, but we have the ability to essentially through our innovations with our engineering department, renovate laboratories and leave in place our competitive's, competitor's systems. It'd be like taking a an older device that doesn't have smarts on it, leaving the mechanical system in place and putting our smarts on it. We're willing to do that. What that does for customers, particularly laboratories, is if you've got a, a valve, which is one of the products that we make, 
and it's living in the ceiling inside the ductwork. There's probably nothing wrong with that valve. It's a mechanical device. It's designed to last for a long time. But if it's older, it's not going to have any smarts on it. In order to renovate that lab to achieve the energy savings, oftentimes it requires ripping the ceiling out, ripping mm-hmm. the ductwork out, and starting over. What we're willing to say to customers now, and we've got success stories out there, is leave the ductwork in place. Leave your ceiling in place. We'll come into our competitor's valve. We'll put our smarts on it, allow you to achieve the energy savings, allow you to get control of your lab in a way you didn't have before, get visibility through your building automation system that you couldn't do before, and yet we'll reduce the renovation costs by not having to rip apart the ceiling. Smarts being like sensors and things like that? Sensors and controls, essentially, so that you can um, give you a simple example. Uh, Older labs didn't have this ability, but newer labs do, where you can have motion and presence sensors so that if people are in the lab, it's operating at one level using energy to make sure the lab is safe. Once the lab is unoccupied, it can go into a setback mode, which means that everything gets lowered. All the energy necessary to keep the lab safe uh, can be done at a much reduced capacity because there's nobody actually in the lab. So the ability to know that allows you to achieve energy savings, where in the past you had to run that lab as if somebody was in there 24-7. So those are simple things that can be done now. No reason to, to, to gut the ceiling and take the mechanical device in play, out, out of the ceiling, but we can put our controllers and our sensors on there and give you the ability to do those types of things while reducing the construction costs. That sounds like a huge value to your to your customers. It is. And it's what customers told us they wanted to be able to do. And um, we looked at that. And so, yes, we're giving up some part of the sale. We're not selling our valve. We're going to sell our controllers. But it's what customers are looking for, and we'll gain market share that way. Great, great. Did you have anything that you wanted to add in terms of product innovation, John? Uh, so I'll say... Uh, we don't want to talk specifics about things that we're working on, but I uh, will just kind of close by saying that we are constantly looking at improving the products, and uh, we are currently working on the next generation of, of all of our controller products. Great. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful show. It's been delightful having you this morning. It was a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having us. So if uh, folks would like to get in touch with you to hear more about anything that they've heard today, how can they do that? Uh, feel free to call me. Our main number is 770-242-1922. And you can find us on the web at www.triatech.com. And that's T-R-I-A-T-E-K.com. Thank you so much. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.